Father, I'm constantly amazed at the practicality of your word. That as we go into these things, we, we learn and we see so clearly that these are not just Sunday school stories. They're not just old history. But they have very real application to our lives today. I find, Lord, as we read these verses, how much I relate to the humanity of the people of Israel. How much I understand their whining and their complaining and their grumbling, their lack of faith, their lack of sight, their inability to know which way to go, to listen to you. Father, we all struggle with that. We, we like to, to stand up and say, boy, we're, we're spiritual people and we desire that. We certainly hunger after righteousness, Father, and holiness. But give us a couple of days on our own and, and we so quickly find ourselves wandering just like the Israelites. And Father, I pray tonight we're a smaller group and, and that's cool because it's more intimate. Um, but I pray, Father, that you will really touch us and that your word will really reach into where we are as I know it has the power to do. Father, I rest in that in that peace every single time we open the Bible, that, that your word has a power and an ability to do something that I don't know how to do, and that's touch every single one of us. And God, you know what we bring to the table tonight. And I pray that you'll give us all the courage as we study individually to lay it out before you, to open our hearts to you. Father, there are some who just need to pray through the whole study tonight. Some who don't even really need to open their Bibles, but just need to be talking to you. And I pray that you'll get their attention and they'll do so. Father, some who are going to be captured by maybe one verse or, or one concept or one thought, and they just need to mull that over. And Father, I pray that you will meet them in that place. And Father, continue to move us closer to you. And I pray a special blessing. Father, the book of Revelation says there's a blessing to anyone who reads and heeds the words written in the book. I pray, Father, tonight that you will present and give a special blessing to any and every one of us here who will not only read these things this week, but will heed them and seek to live by them. So bless this time, Father. Holy Spirit, we just we put ourselves at your mercy and at your guidance that you teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 13, as we open up these pages, we find the Israelites encamped at an infamous location. You may have heard the name before, Kadesh Barnea. Now, we won't hear that name until a little bit further on, but that's where they are. They're at Kadesh Barnea. They are on the border of the Promised Land. They are on the verge of promise, on the verge of receiving everything that God had offered them. Everything that God said He was going to do for them, they were right there. And I'm stunned to realize and to note as we read this how often I'm in that same place, right on the verge of promise, but I don't have the faith to take the next step and go on into the land. I don't have the faith to go further. And so I have to backtrack, sometimes several weeks or months, to, I, to the point where I can get back around to that place of promise. And they're right there. And yet, their 14 months traveling that they've now spent, 14 months since they left Egypt, it's only been that long. It may seem longer. We've gone through several books and we've been probably, I think we've been more than 14 months ourselves. But it, be that as it may, they, they, they were all there. They're now here. It's been 14 months. It's about to get longer. It's about to get much longer. Not because of the foes ahead of them, but because of the fears within them. Not because of what's waiting for them in the promised land in terms of danger, but because they can't see what God is up to. They still haven't learned what he is all about. The enemy who gives them so much trouble is not the enemy without, it's the enemy within. And it often seems to be the same way with us. I want to invite you for a moment to flip in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger in, in Numbers 13. We'll get right back there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Beginning about verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul writes the following. Maybe you can relate. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And those little things that just get you that niggle at you, that, that bug you, that, that frustrate you, those light and momentary afflictions, these things are producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
2 Corinthians 4.18 Paul says While we look not at the things which are seen But at the things which are not seen For the things which are seen are temporal But the things which are not seen are eternal He goes on and says For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down We have a building from God A house not made with hands Eternal in the heavens For indeed in this house we groan Talking about our physical bodies We groan in this house Boy I understand that this week I'm telling you I've been groaning in this house Longing he says To be clothed with our dwelling from heaven Inasmuch as we having put it on Will not be found naked For indeed while we're in this tent We groan Being burdened Because we do not want to be unclothed But to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. I like that. That's what, what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. We are not alive right now. Far from it. We're not even close to life. To real life. I mean the best of the best of the best of all possible days. Where we just feel like we couldn't possibly be more alive. We are dead by comparison to how alive we're going to be in the times to come. And he says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. As a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, he says, verse 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. What a fantastic thing to say. Spoken by the apostle, spoken in such a way he is at a point in his life where he realizes it truly is better to go on and be with the Lord. That what's going on right now is momentary, it's temporary, it's important, but this is not the end game. This is not what it's all about. My plans, my physical body, my mind, all these things that are, that are temporary, it's not what it's for. This is all just prep time for what it's really about. And he says in that fantastic verse, verse 7 of, of chapter 5, We walk by faith, not by sight. And if there's any one thing in my life I pray over, over, and over, and again and again, it's help me to walk by faith. I don't want to walk by sight. I don't want to walk by the things that I see. I'll tell you you all something, and I just thought about this as people were coming in tonight. Ten years ago, if if I was in a youth ministry situation, and I had a youth ministry in California, I've talked about them before, and it was a large group, a group of about 250 kids. If on a Wednesday night, out of our 250 kids, I had a small turnout like we have tonight, it would have really bothered me, really upset me. I look and I say, what am I doing wrong? Something is not right here. And yet, as I was sitting there behind my guitar and watching people filter in, and seeing just kind of the general number of people, I'm so reminded that it doesn't matter if one person shows up. If we're in the Word together, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We walk by faith, not by sight. What my eyes tell me is we don't have a whole lot of people here tonight. What my faith tells me is what's happening here tonight is the most important thing of the week in my life and for each of you. That God, in His power, in His glory, in His ability, can take two or three people and change a region where we think we've got to have an army. Now, wonderfully, we see the Bridge Christian Fellowship growing and growing and growing beyond anything that I expected. And it's fantastic. But it's so easy to get caught up by the sight of that. Sunday morning, when it's packed out, you look around and go, wow, we're really doing something. And I submit to you that the real doing happens right here on Wednesday night. This is where things are moving in the spiritual world, in the spirit realm, in the area that's unseen. We don't see right now. What we see, the physical, is a few of us gathered together around the Word. But what's going on in the spiritual, in this area and in this region, I have become convinced of this. And early on in the Wednesday nights with the bridge, and I may even have talked about this quite a while ago, a year and a half ago, I think the Lord just wants His Word preached. It doesn't matter who's here. 
He wants the word being spoken in this place, in this area. Because the speaking and the teaching of God's word, even if it is just with a small group of people, has an impact spiritually far beyond anything that we can measure. So as we begin tonight, we need to understand that that is the key, that we walk by faith, not by sight. Back in verse 18 of, of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are, not, which are seen are temporary, the things which are not seen are eternal. It's eternal. And gang, tonight, Israel's problem going into chapter 13 is they are focused on what's seen. On what their eyes can tell them, they are not thinking about the unseen. They're not thinking about the power of God, what He can do, what He will accomplish, and what He's already promised to do. With that in mind, the trouble begins when they decide to send in the spies. You may have heard the story. Israel sends spies into the land to check it out, to see what's going on there. Let's read in verse 1, Numbers chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Now, there's something interesting right in there. God says, Go ahead and send out guys that they may spy out the land, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Why do they need to spy out the land at all? The Lord says, I'm giving it to you. It's yours. This is a done deal, Israelites. It's finished. It's, the work is done. You're going in. The land is yours. No question about it. Why send spies in? Read on. Verse 3 says, So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord. Actually, the word command there is at the mouth of the Lord. All of them men who are heads of the sons of Israel. So, reading those first three verses, whose idea was it to send in the spies? Just the obvious answer. was God's. You read that and go, okay, God called them to send in the spies. Guess what? It wasn't God's idea at all. Flip over in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. And as you're flipping there, let me remind you the best commentary on the scriptures is the scriptures themselves. The best way to understand one part of the Bible is to find out more about it in another part of the Bible to let the Bible teach you about itself. We'll see that later on in a, in, a, in a little bit as well, just the idea of Moses' authorship of the, of the first five books. How do we know Moses was the author? Because the Bible tells us that he was the author in other places. But watch this. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21. Moses, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy, we'll get there pretty quick now, is all a sermon of Moses. From chapter 1 all the way to the end, it's Moses recounting everything that's happened. It's, it's him basically speaking to the Israelites. So Moses here says in verse 21 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you, do not fear or be dismayed. Then, Moses says, all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. And Moses says, verse 23, the thing pleased me and I took 12 of your men, one man for each tribe. Now he goes on to recount the story that we're going to talk about tonight. Let's skip ahead to verse 32. He says, for all this you did not trust the Lord your God. Who, verse 33, goes out before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go? What does their history tell them, their leader, or who does their history tell them their leader really is? The Lord. Have they ever sent out spies before this? No. It hasn't happened. And so all of a sudden now, going back to number 13, they're sending out spies, and we discover from Deuteronomy that if anything, the Lord acquiesced to what they requested. It was the people who wanted to send the spies out. Moses was saying, God says the land's yours, go on up and take it. And the people came to Moses. The people said, can we send some people in first, just to check it out ahead of time? Can we get someone with some eyesight to go and look at it, and come back and tell us about it? That was their first mistake. Because they're going to see things in the land that disturb them. Things that they would not have recognized or realized otherwise. They wouldn't have known. But they're going to see some things 
And Jesus, didn't He say, John 20, 29, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Get this down and understand this about faith. Vision is not the same thing as sight. Vision is not the same as sight. Sight is not vision. Vision is knowing where you're going without necessarily having seen it or having seen it. Sight is seeing where you're going. Vision is knowing that there's something ahead that you're going to be coming to. Sight is seeing it. Big difference. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Hebrews 3 verse 17 says, With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Listen to this. So we see that they were not able to enter the promised land because of unbelief. It was a faith issue. It was the worst thing they did. I submit to you this is worse than the golden calf incident. Worse than that, than setting up an idol. Why? Because in this instance, they had no faith whatsoever. They're going to look at the land, and they will lose heart, they will lose faith very quickly. Let's read the story. Going on, it says in verse 4, that these were their names. And from verse 4 all the way down to verse 16, it's going to give the names of the guys. Shamua, in verse 4. And Shaphat in verse 5 uh, Probably ought to be working out with me Shaphat And uh, Caleb in verse 6 And Eagle or Igal in verse 7 Hoshea verse 8 Verse 9 says Palti and Gadiel in 10 And verse 11 Gadi Verse 12 Amiel And then there's Sethur in verse 13 Verse 14 is Nabi Verse 15 is Geuel And these are the names Verse 16 of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land But Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun Joshua So among the 12 spies listed here Two stand out Two need to be known Two need to be paid attention to The rest not so much the two are Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua. Something real quick to note about these two. Caleb's name means dog. Isn't that great? Dog. Caleb is the dog, but I'll tell you what, he's faithful. He is faithful. Literally, Caleb's name means attack dog. He's a go-getter. He, he's, a, he's a man of faith. He's going to get it done. Dog. Hoshea is the other one whose name means salvation but as we just read in verse 16 Moses changed Hoshea's name to Yehoshua Joshua which means God's salvation or God saves so Joshua like Moses before him is going to personify Jesus whose name was Yeshua so we have Yehoshua, Joshua, we have Yeshua in the New Testament, Jesus. The names are very similar because Joshua of the Old Testament will be, as you'll see, a picture of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. Well, verse 17, reading on, says, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, and then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, and whether they may be few or many. How is the land in which they live? How is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So verse 21, they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob to Lebohama. And when they had gone up into the Negev and they came to Hebron, where uh, Ahiman and Shishai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were, now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, just for those of you who are curious about that. Verse 23, Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down, watch this, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs, and that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. A cluster of grapes. This had to be huge. It took two men to carry it. I have yet to buy a, a, a bunch of grapes, a cluster of grapes in the grocery store that I couldn't hold in one hand. They needed two men and a stick to hold this cluster of grapes. A mass, this is a fruit-filled land. More so than we see today, more so than any time in Israel's history, at least after AD 70, this was a fruitful land. 
And they went up and they get this massive cluster of grapes. They're bringing this back. It's amazing. And this is kind of cool. They traveled through a place called Hebron. Who do we know used to live in Hebron? Abraham did. And Isaac... And after him, Jacob, Genesis 37, 27, says Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And so these 12 spies going into the land went to Hebron. It would have been, should have been homecoming for them. How awesome to walk through that place and, and to know their ancestors of 430 years before, this is where they live. This is home. This is it. We're back. Now, they didn't see that, though. They didn't see that. Their fear got in the way. They were unable to see what a blessing it was just to be there. I was thinking reading this verse that I was in Hebron. And it was so cool. And my ancestor Abraham was in Hebron. Rick, you're not a Jew. No, I am by faith. I am the son of Abraham by faith. I am his ancestor through faith. And to be there was an amazing experience. How much more so for these guys? To see after 400 years that God kept his promise. We're back. We're here. They didn't see it. Before we get there, there's something else I want you to notice though. I made a little joke about it. But that little parenthetical sentence at the end of verse 22. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Let me remind you that nothing is in scripture by chance. Nothing is in scripture that's just kind of an afterthought. Just tossed in there, just stuck in there for no reason at all. There is reason and purpose for everything that's in the Bible. Including this little parenthesis. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. What's the deal? Verse 22 is something God has done for us. Knowing sovereignly that down the line eventually there would be people who began to question whether or not this book was actually written by Moses. People who would question the legitimacy of the authorship of different books in the Bible. In our day, we call them the higher critics. The higher critics. I don't know how they got that name. But these are guys who sit around and they think through these things and they try to doubt their way through the Bible and question everything, especially if the Bible says it. Now, the Bible tells us, Jesus himself said that Moses authored the first five books, the Torah, or in Greek, the Pentateuch. Moses authored these books, and it's a very clear claim. The Bible indicates that. Everywhere you look, this is written by Moses. Yet the higher critic would say, no, nah, no, nah, it's just it's not. It's too, that's too simplistic of you. There had to be several authors who put it together, and they just all kind of came under the name of Moses. And again, the idea of higher criticism, this, this thinking it out so much that what they're trying to do really is just undermine the truth of the Scriptures. And I believe the Bible tells us everything we need to know about the Bible. And the Bible supports itself. People who would question the book of Daniel as a book of prophecy. And yet Jesus refers to Daniel the prophet. That's all I need to know. Jesus referred to him that way. But what about this, this verse here? Why is it here? What's this have to do with Moses' authorship? Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Zoan. What Zoan? Obviously it's a place in Egypt. But what kind of place? Gang, Zoan was known to be, among the Egyptians, a secret, guarded, private resort of the pharaohs. It's a place that the pharaohs would go to. The pharaohs' families had access to. The people of Egypt didn't. In fact, anyone who was not of the royal family line of the pharaohs didn't even know where Zoan was. It was guarded. It was kept secret. It was protected. And literally, though, there were some indications of this place, like in the Bible, talks about Zoan. For thousands of years, people wondered whether Zoan even existed at all. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's no such place until 1939 when a major archaeological discovery was found. In the Nile River Delta, northeast of Cairo, ancient ruins were discovered by a man named Pierre Monte. And there they dug up gold and riches greater than those that were found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, King Tut. Those riches that have absolutely spellbound the world as it goes on its little King Tut tours, you know, around the world and people can go see, oh, the riches of King Tut and the gold and all that. This place was richer by far in gold and jewels and precious stones. And this dig at Zoan, this dig at Zoan revealed an archival library of the pharaohs and their families including genealogies and family secrets. And it has another interesting name. If you're an Indiana Jones buff, you would recognize this name. It's also called Tanis. Tanis. 
that place in the very first Indiana Jones movie where they have to go into the well of the souls and the, you know, the, the Germans and Nazis are all digging at this place called Tanis. That's Zoan. And it's a literal archaeological dig. It's a true find back in, in 1939. But here's the point. Remember again what I just said. The secret place was known only to the pharaohs and their immediate families. No one else among the Egyptians, and certainly not among the Hebrews, would have known about this place. Moses knew. Why did Moses know? Well, whose family was Moses raised in? Pharaohs. Moses would have had access to Zoan. He would have grown up. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace and Pharaoh's court. So he would have gone to Zoan. He would have known about Zoan. And he would have known when Zoan was built. He tells us it was seven years before or seven years after Hebron was when they built Zoan. I know, because I was there, says Moses, the one-time member of Pharaoh's family. That is so cool that we have this. What it is, it's a little imprint. It's a signature of Moses on the book of Numbers. We know that he wrote this. How do you know? Well, the Bible tells us, but he also tells us things that no one else could possibly know, say, an Egyptian. Did an Egyptian write Numbers? I don't think so. One of the pharaohs? Probably not. Moses did. Moses did. Psalm 85.11 tells us one of my favorite recent verses, Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from the heavens. Truth springs from the earth. So we see these amazing things. Well, God's word, any way you cut it, man, it holds up. Any way you slice it, his word is right on target. It is always true. Now let's listen into the spies' report, verse 25. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, notice they were in there for 40 days, interesting, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them all and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And thus they told them and, and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit, big old cluster of grapes. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. By the way, this is all stuff God told them ahead of time. This should be no surprise. He told them all these people were living there and that they were going to go in and clear them out. Then Caleb, well, he quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up, Caleb, the attack dog. We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. They are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Verse 33 there we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Ten spies brought the majority report. Two spies, the minority report. Ten spoke in fear. Two spoke in faith. Ten had eyesight. Two had vision. Joshua and Caleb saw it as no problem. But the other ten definitely did. Now, without looking back in your Bibles, who can name even one of the other ten spies? Can you do it? Fat guy. Fat guy. Okay, that's good. And that's the best you can do. That's because these guys don't matter. These are guys living by the flesh. They have passed away. If you ask any ten Christians anywhere in the world, who are the other ten spies? I, I, I would wager that none of them could say, oh, well, that's so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, nobody knows the list. But everybody's heard of and knows the names Joshua and Caleb. Why is that? Because overcomers, gang, are always remembered. Especially by the Lord. Not just historically, but divinely. Overcomers are remembered. I love this, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus ends up every single one of his seven letters to the seven churches with a note to the overcomers. Listen quickly to what he said. Revelation 2, 7, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Verse 11, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17, 
to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. What's all that about? Well, you can pick up the Revelation CDs and find out for yourself. Revelation 2.26, he says, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. By the way, that's a prophecy that refers to Jesus and he is sharing that with the overcomers. He says, the overcomers, you're going to rule right alongside me. I also received authority from my father, he says, and I will give the overcomer the morning star. And then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 12 of chapter 3, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name... In Revelation 3.21, he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then at the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus says this, He who overcomes will inherit all these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, he says, for the cowardly and unbelieving... And I'll let you read that on your own, but it's not a pretty sight. For the cowardly and the unbelieving, because, gang, cowardliness, cowardice, and unbelief, these things go hand in hand. They work together. Because, and and get this, we fear what we have faith in. We fear what we have faith in. Our faith is in what we fear. What do you mean by that? Two of the spies saw huge fruit. Ten of the spies saw huge foes. Where was their faith? Joshua and Caleb had faith in God. That's who they feared. The other ten spies, they feared the foes. They were afraid of the people. And that's where their faith was. In the people. They had faith that the people would wipe them out. Two of the spies had great faith and would presently see walls crumble around Jericho and as they move on into the land... Ten of the spies saw great walls and their faith crumbled immediately. Joshua and Caleb feared God. The other ten guys feared giants and that's the difference between vision and sight. The other ten guys saw with their eyes. Joshua and Caleb saw with faith. They had vision. They had heard for the last year, I'm going to take you into the land. I will lead you back into the promised land. You're going to take the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Amalekites and the flashlights. You're going to take all these guys. It's the difference between vision. I just can't get away. I have to read that. You know? And the termites. That's right. <laughs> these guys, these ten guys said, we're like tiny little grasshoppers to them. They're huge. We're like grasshoppers. And I love this verse. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 21 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. You see, to Joshua and Caleb, to the overcomer, obstacles and enemies, those are the grasshoppers. Even if they're bigger than me, they're still grasshoppers to God. Even if it's larger than me, even if the challenge ahead of me seems insurmountable, it's still tiny to the Lord, as big as it may look to me. And so the question is, are we going to be those who see big, who recognize how big and grand and awesome our God is, or are we going to be frightened by the little things that just happen to be slightly larger than we are? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And listen, overcoming may be as simple for you as, I don't know, staying in a tough marriage, working it out. It may be trusting the Lord through job uncertainty. It may be walking peacefully through a life-threatening illness. 
It may be dealing with any manner of things that for you, it just seems larger than you are. You feel like a grasshopper compared to it, but you are an overcomer when you see that whatever your obstacle is, is a grasshopper to the Lord. And that He is great, and He is mighty, and He is where your faith rests. By the way, there's a real interesting contrast here in these 12 spies. It's interesting to me how it breaks down. You've got ten on one side and two on the other side. What does ten represent in the Bible? What does the number ten immediately make you think of in the Bible? The number ten in the Bible is the number of the law. It's the number of law. So whenever you see that number in the Bible, stop for a moment, ask yourself, could this be speaking somewhat of the law? Ten spies who are not functioning in faith, they're functioning in works. We don't have the power to take this land. We don't have what it takes to work out this conquest. We can't do it. And like the Ten Commandments, like the law, this is something, gang, that we can't work it out. And they couldn't work it out. On the other hand, you've got the two guys. You've got dog, and you've got God's salvation. A dog and God's salvation, which I think is even more interesting. Turn over to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Because we've got attack God and God's salvation in a completely different place than the ten spies who are representative here, I believe, of the law and works and that which we cannot do. Matthew 15, look in verse 21, a precious story here. Jesus went away from there and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is uh, heathen central, okay? This is up in northern Israel. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. (laughs) These disciples are something else. Send away the Gentiles. She's frightening us. She's shouting. She's being angry. We don't like that. But he answered and said, listen to what Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a Gentile. Canaanite woman. I wasn't sent to you, he says. Well, I thought Jesus came into the world to save all people. Oh, he did. But not yet. Not yet. This isn't his time. And so he says, I wasn't sent to you. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, and you might think this uncharacteristic of Jesus, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's the dog. Dog. Kind of like Caleb. It's not good to throw the children's bread to the dogs. By the way, just so you know where Jesus' heart is, the word dogs there in the Greek really is puppies. There was a, it was a statement that had some affection to it. It wasn't a slap in the face. It wasn't you dog. It was, I can't take what's for the Jewish people and give that bread to the puppies. And she... Oh, she's wonderful. She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Wow. Jesus said, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What's the point? Gang, listen. The Gentile dog has great faith. It is the Syrophoenician woman who Jesus refers to as a dog who had faith. And it was because of her faith that her daughter was saved. In the same way back in our chapter, in chapter 13, Caleb the dog had faith. And it was because of his faith, ultimately, and Joshua's faith, that the two of them would walk in the promised land. None of the other ten spies would ever see the promised land. As a matter of fact, as you'll see, none of the other ten spies would see the light of day after this day. Their lives were forfeit. The problem with the spies is a Jewish problem. It's the eyes on the work ahead. And when you can't do the work, you can't move ahead because works are always sight-oriented. It's always based on what I see that I can or cannot accomplish. And so the ten spies, they were all about works. Joshua and Caleb, all about faith. And we know this verse 
Boy, if you don't, it should be memorized and emblazoned in your forehead. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now going on, chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died out here in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Yeah, yeah. So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. That's what we'll do. What do you do with a people like this? How do you lead a group like this? Moses must have just been beside himself. And yet we see this powerful picture in Moses. Look at what he did. And Aaron, who is beginning to learn. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. They prayed. They fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. When Moses was beset by an unbelieving people, he prayed. As a matter of fact, he said that you're going to recognize Moses in heaven very easily. He's going to be the one who has a flat nose. Because he's always on his face. He's always face down praying time and time again. Every time the people grumble, Moses goes to the Lord. And that's what he's doing right here. Verse 6 going on. Joshua, the son of Nun, which by the way indicates Joshua had no parents. Either that or his mom was Catholic. I don't know. I'm not sure how that works. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of who... Uh, of those who had spied out the land tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land if the Lord is pleased with us then he will bring us into the land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey keep that word in mind pray They will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They could have quoted Paul's words ahead of time and said, What shall we say to these things? Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who's against us? What are we worried about? And so Moses and Aaron, they're on the ground. They're praying. And as they pray, Joshua and Caleb reveal a different kind of pray. They say, You pray. They are prey. These guys are our prey. But what's interesting about that is the word prey that's translated that way is the Hebrew word lachem, which is real good to say when you know with a little sinus problem. Lachem. It means bread. Bread. Beth lachem. House of bread. The Hebrew word bread. So what they're saying is, hey, don't fear the people of the land. They'll be our bread. I love this. They're not even saying they'll be our lunch meat. They're saying they'll be our bread for our lunch meat. We'll take these guys out. These guys are easy. They're nothing to us. They are our opportunity to be nourished. These guys are our bread. We feast on this. We're going to get stronger. This was the attitude, by the way, of this attack dog of Caleb. Man, he was ready to take on anybody because he knew it would make him stronger. I want to be around people like that. I want to hang out with people who are gutsy in their faith. Who say there's nothing that Satan can do. Man, his attempts, it's bread. Bring it on. Make life hard on me. It just makes me believe God more. It just makes me stronger in the Lord. He is nothing but bread. Caleb would say, hey, if we go in faith, the enemies will be served up and will feed our faith and will strengthen us as a nation as we go up against them. They're bread. By the way, whatever happened to Caleb? We know Joshua went on to, you know, lead the people and write his own book and be well known and all that. What about Caleb? Whatever happened to this guy? This is so cool. Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through 15, you can read it on your own time. It tells us that 40 years later, and and Caleb's 45 at this point, 40 years later, they come into the promised land. Caleb is an 85-year-old man, and he comes up to Joshua and he goes, All right, I want my inheritance to be the hills of Kiriath Arba in Hebron. That's where I want my inheritance to be. Why? Listen to this. He says in verse 11 of Joshua 14, 
I am still as strong today as I was in the day when Moses sent me. He's 85. I am not still as strong today as I was two years ago, and I know because of working out. Okay? But he is 40 years older now, and he says, I am still this strong. And he goes on and says, My strength was as it was then, so it is now for war and for going out and coming in. Arr, attack dog. <laughs> now then he says, Give me this hill country about which, which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that the Anakim were there. Who are the Anakim? Big guys. Giants in the land. And he says, I want to go where the Anakim are. He says, I want to go to the great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, says Caleb, and I will drive them out just as the Lord has spoken. He's 85, and he goes into the land. He's finally in the land of promise. Man, it's retirement time. And Caleb says, give me the hills of Kiriath Arba, where the sons of Arba are, the sons of Anak. I want to route me some giants. <laughs> what a great guy. Massive faith. Massive vision. Let me settle in the hills of the giants so I can have my sandwiches. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Joshua or Judges 1.20 says they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had promised and he drove out from there the sons of Anak. He drove them out. He did exactly what he said he'd do. 85. Amazing. That's faith. That's vision. Well, back to faithless sightless Israel. Verse 10 goes on and says, but all the congregation... After Caleb and Joshua pleaded, and after Moses and Aaron are praying, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Oops. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with their pestilence and with pestilence and dispossess them. And Moses, listen, I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses, I'm giving it to you. Forget the inheritance promised to the sons of Israel. They have just lost it. It's all yours if you want it. Do you get what the Lord is offering here? He is offering replacement theology. We've talked about replacement theology. It's the whole idea that the church has replaced Israel. That we have taken that place away from Israel. And it's unbiblical. But in this place, that's what God is doing. He is in essence saying, What I promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I withdraw and I will give it to you, Moses. So are you saying that God is on the verge of violating His own promises? No. No. Watch what happens. Verse 13. But Moses said to the Lord, Well, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength you brought this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Verse 15, Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by an oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In other words, Moses turns to God and says, Lord, if you do this, all the surrounding people will say, You are a God who does not keep his promises. If you pass this on to... This is a man of amazing faith. Moses, no wonder the Bible says no other prophet arose in all of Israel like Moses. He is able to turn to the Lord and, and, and see there's no greed, no malice in his heart at all. He just says, Lord, this, this will make your name look bad. People will not believe in your promises if you do this. Well, verse 17 he says, but now I pray let the power of the Lord be great just as you have declared. And he quotes the Lord. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And Moses is just saying back to the Lord what the Apostle Paul later said, Romans 11.29, that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Let me ask you, do you think the Lord needed to be reminded of that? 
So what's going on here? What's happening here? God says he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Period. But, but why then does the Lord offer to do something in direct violation of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Look at verse 20. It is. It is. Absolutely. That's right. Well, look at verse 20. Read on. He says, I have pardoned them according to your word. What's happening here? Listen. And our friend is right. This is an education process for Moses. This is a teaching time for Moses. God knows exactly what he's going to do, what his plan has been all along. He never once pulled back from his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in this setting, God does something amazing. He provides Moses with an opportunity to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. He allows Moses to get on board. He basically lets Moses do what God had put in Moses' heart to do in the first place, and that is intercede for the people. Where did Moses get the idea? Where did he get the passion, the heart, to to stand up for the people? God put it there. The Lord questions Moses, giving Moses an opportunity to walk out his faith in the Lord and to intercede. And the Lord does it all the time. Before Isaiah, Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision, Isaiah chapter 6. And God says, who will go for me? Who's going to go? He knew Isaiah was going to go. But he asked the question, who's going to go? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. God says, who will stand in the gap for me? Jesus says, go into all the world. Give them the gospel. Do it for me. Does God need us to do these things for him? No, but we need to do these things. We are called to be on board. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul writes, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do you realize how amazing that is? God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Does he need us to do it? No, but he's given it to us to bring. He has handed us the gospel on a silver platter, as it were, the platter of redemption, and he says, take it. You do it. Well, Lord, I don't think I can do it. Look, I'm giving it to you because I know you can. Because I have put my spirit on your heart, just like he put his spirit on Moses' heart. It's not that Moses' words change God's heart here. It's God's word is in Moses' heart to bring this thing about. Back in Numbers chapter 11, verse 17, we saw that the Spirit of God rests on the heart of Moses. He is speaking and functioning as a Spirit-filled leader. We're going on now. Verse 21. We're going to finish real quick here. It says, Indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, God is speaking. And surely, he says, all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times. How many times? Ten times. It's another picture of works. They have put me to the test ten times. They have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Ten times. Ten failures. But verse 24, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. What kind of spirit did Caleb have in him? Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of discipline. The Greek word power there is dunamis. It is the power, the spiritual power that is beyond our flesh. It's a power to do in the spirit what we cannot do in the flesh. And Paul says, we've all been given this power. We all have this power. We walk with the same power, the same spirit of a Caleb and a Moses. The spirit of God. Why then do people not use it? Why is it that churches sit stagnant and the power does not go out in the churches? Because of faith. Because we don't believe we have the power. 
with Pastor Don Tunnel. I had a really interesting conversation last Sunday. Got a call from one of the guys here at the church, and we were talking about something, and, and he was asking for some prayer about a specific issue. And he said, I really want some confirmation that what I'm going to do here is the right thing. And we prayed about it, and I said to him, you know what, for what it's worth, I think it is the right thing. Now, his wife had already confirmed the same thing. And so I made this comment. I said, hey, look, your wife has confirmed it. That's 99% of the confirmation you need, but I'll give you my little 1%. I confirm, I, I believe this is what you're supposed to do. And he chastised me. He rebuked the pastor. <laughs> and he said on the phone that day, he said, Rick, don't underestimate or undermine the authority that God has given you in this role. And I, I kind of, because I, I don't like that whole thing. I, I would prefer just be Rick. People who call me pastor, it makes me a little uncomfortable. But, but he was right. Don't abdicate or undermine the power that God has given you to minister to people. Don't back away from that. Well, shy away from the power of the flesh, but not the power of the Spirit. When God is at work in you to minister to other people, allow that power to flow. Don't be afraid of it. Don't cast it off. We have this tendency as Christians to kind of do the false humility thing. Oh, no, no, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me, but it was God. It was God speaking, and I believe this is exactly what God wants you to do, and I confirm that. So I said, okay, 2%. You're my 2%. You're my 1%. But Caleb had this spirit of power and love and discipline. But because the people's faith is so weak, now God says in verse 26, He tells them to turn around. Verse 25, sorry, it says, Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Why, Lord? Because these guys don't have the faith to battle the Canaanites right now. They don't have the faith to go up against the Amalekites right now. They will be wiped out. Moses, turn them around. You head them back to the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, verse 27, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. And listen to this. Watch this. Verse 28. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. That's a powerful verse. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 2 says, You have been snared with the words of your mouth. God says, I will punish you by your own words. By what you have said, that will be your punishment. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, I will surely do to you. Verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Remember what the people said? Did the Lord bring us out here to die in the wilderness? By your words. It will be done, he says. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men. Remember over 600,000. We saw that number earlier. All your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey. Remember the people that said that earlier. Oh no, our our children, they're going to be preyed on. No, your children, I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, verse 32, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons... Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. It's all what the people of Israel said. Jesus says, The good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And there's a powerful combination here between words and faith. Between what we believe and what we say, which is why Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God understands this and how we function. We need to say it. And what we say, what comes out of our mouth, comes from the heart. And if I believe it, my words will reflect it. And if I don't believe it, we're going to die in the wilderness. We're going to fall apart right here. I've just spoken what my heart has already believed. And they spoke their fear. 
So God says, you're going to stay in the wilderness, you're going to die in the wilderness. By the way, on that very day, the ten spies died. Watch this. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all the evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive out of those men who went to spy out the land. Forty days bought them forty years. The number of forty in the Bible speaks always of trial, of adversity, and of judgment. Even Jesus' forty days in the wilderness was a forty days under fire. It was a hard time. Forty days and forty nights that the world was flooded, you may recall. And now 40 years going to be spent in the wilderness by this people. 40 is not a good number. It's interesting to me. All the focus in especially certain movements in the church today about 40 days of this and 40 days of that. 40 days of purpose you've all heard of in the purpose-driven church movement. And 40 is not a positive number in the scriptures. It's a number of trial and judgment and adversity. Well, God doesn't destroy all Israel. He pardons the nation as a whole, but he does bring serious repercussions for their lack of faith. And recognize this, understand this, we're almost done. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You might say, okay, I understand that, but in that whole forgiveness thing of the Lord, what about 1 John 1 9? I thought we're cleansed when we sin and we confess. Aren't we cleansed? 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we're going to end on this point, but you need to get this. Confession does provide healing. It does provide restoration and forgiveness, but it does not necessarily keep us from repercussions. Now, if you've walked at all with the Lord for any amount of time, you probably recognize that and know that. Younger people don't so much and need to be taught that and understand it's not as simple as cheapening grace by just turning around every time we've done something wrong and going, oh, sorry about that one, Lord. Sorry about that one, Lord. The reality is sin brings consequence even if you are forgiven of it. The people of Israel are forgiven. They're pardoned. God doesn't wipe them all out. But there are serious repercussions that follow and the children of Israel still don't get it. Look at verse 39. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They mourned. And in the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned. There's your confession right there. They recognized they sinned. They recognized they were faithless. But, and that's an awful word to have in the middle of this sentence, we have sinned, but, we have sinned, however, we've done wrong, although... We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. God said, no you won't. Don't go up there. You turn around and you head back down into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Don't go up. And in their supposed kind of cheap confession, they show a spiritual arrogance which helps me recognize they still have no vision. And they say, no, we're going to go up to the place which the Lord has promised. We did wrong, but we said we're sorry, and now we're going. And Moses says, verse 41, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. Verse 44. But they went up heedlessly. Heedlessly simply meaning without heeding. They didn't listen. 
They paid no attention. They went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Verse 45. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. Hormah, which means devoted for destruction. They were driven back to this place, devoted for destruction, brutally beaten down. Horma is interesting, also has a secondary meaning. The root word that it comes from means to be flattened in the face. We have two pictures of that in our study tonight. Moses flat nose for being flat on his face before the Lord praying, and now the people, as if they have run smack dab into a wall, are flattened in the face as they're driven back to Horma because they went forward not in faith, but in presumption. Not with vision, but with eyesight. They didn't listen. The practicality of all this you can work out and pray about in your own life, but gang, listen. Faith is not about putting our heads down and blindly barreling forward in hopes that things will work out. I'm a Christian and I believe, therefore, I'm just going to step out and we're just going to do this. Faith, vision, is looking at the things of God. It's praying for the ability to see the things that are unseen. It's trusting the power and the authority of God to do what we cannot and will not do without Him. And we end with the verses we began with, 2 Corinthians 4.18 and 5.9. We will not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we walk by faith and not by sight. God bless the study of your word and write this stuff on our hearts. May we be those who walk with faith and with vision. And God, I pray for the vision that you give to this very fellowship. Not not a vision written down on a piece of paper that we can say, oh, look at our vision. God, we pray that every day we would have vision to do what you want us to do. To move in the direction you want us to move, whether it have to do with land, Father, how we do things as, as a body of believers, the way in which we love each other, and Father, more importantly than all this, the way in which we bring the gospel to people all around us. May we have vision for that. May we see the need and see people, Father, the way you see people. And may we, like Caleb and Joshua, may we, Lord, be attack dogs bringing God's salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.